Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys today. Welcome to our family gathering again. Um, And uh, let's jump in. If uh, if you've been with us, you know we've been in uh, a series on Jesus' teaching uh, for several weeks now. We're doing this all the way through till Easter. And we're calling it Upside Down Axioms. And the reason that we're doing that is because uh, an axiom is something that's like a self-evident reality. It's something that everybody sort of commonly understands as wisdom. Uh, But it seems like oftentimes when Jesus opens his mouth and gives his axioms, they're anything but self-evident. They're they're upside down. Um, And many of the things that he says are difficult. They're controversial. They're confusing. Uh, and so we have a hard time accepting them or understanding them. And so we're looking at all of, well, maybe not all of those, because there are a lot, but we're, we're trying to take like the, uh, the biggest ones that when people have looked at those, uh, they've kind of scratched their heads and said, what does he mean by that? Um, and the reason that we're doing that is because in 2019, again, we're, we're pursuing Jesus together. We're following after him. We want to know what's on Jesus' heart for us. What's on his mind for us? Where is he leading? How do we follow after him? And, uh, and, and, and I, here's my theory is that you, you get the best understanding from Jesus from the things that are most difficult to understand about him. Because uh, there are parts of Jesus when he says, like, love your neighbors yourself and treat other people as you want to be treated. You go, yeah, okay, like... We don't realize that that's, that originated with him, and now it's sort of embedded into our culture. And so it's, it's easy to just focus on the things that we understand and avoid the ones that we don't. But we're diving into the ones that we don't. And uh, if you were with us last week, we looked at um, Jesus' statement of how to love your enemies as, your, as your, yourself. As God loved us, we should love our enemies. And uh, that the key to understanding that was turning the other cheek, right? Um, and that in the end, it's impossible to do that with, without God's intervention. So last week, we talked about how to love your enemies. So what's like the next natural thing to talk about this week? How to hate your family. <laughs> right? I mean, because Jesus said both of those things. And uh, so, yeah, I put both of them together just to just for the shock value. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke 14 and uh, just a couple of verses that will be on the screen as well. But this is what Luke 14 verses 25 to 27 says. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters... Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. All right. (laughs) Hate your father. Hate your mother. Hate your children. Hate your wife. Hate brothers, sisters. I mean, um, this is hard, right? Especially in light of last week, where we're supposed to love our enemies, and yet why hate these people that are close to us? Now, it, there's a number of ways that you can read this section. The first one, you can kind of read it with, 
sort of dismissively and with outrage, and you go, if Jesus is supposed to be a good teacher, like why in the world would he say such a harsh thing? So you can read it that way. Other people can and have read this selectively. And they go, you know, I would never hate my children, but I have absolutely no problem hating my mom, <laughs> hating my dad, hating my brother, hating my sister. That's easy. So they just kind of chalk it up as like, okay, I'll just obey this passage selectively. There are people that have been good to me, and I'll be good to them, but there are other people that haven't. And Jesus has given me license to be actively hostile towards those people. And that's, I'm sorry, that's not the way that we should read it. Uh, the way that Jesus wants us to hear this is not primarily a passage about hatred. It's a passage about discipleship. It's a, it's a, it's a teaching and a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, if you've been around as we've done this series, um, the first thing you might be thinking is, like, haven't we covered this topic by now? Because, like, we've, we've been talking an o- over and over and over again about being a disciple and discipleship and following Jesus. And it seems like every single week we're talking about this same topic. You know, here's the truth of the reality. The reason we're talking about it a lot is because we're talking about Jesus' teaching. And guess what Jesus talks about more than absolutely anything else? Discipleship. Following after him. And so Jesus is persistent. He's relentless on this topic of what it means to, to, to pursue him. And so that's part of the reason why we're looking at this whole series. But if it's number one on Jesus' agenda, it should be number one on ours. And every week kind of gives you a different angle, a different perspective of what that looks like. So we're going to talk about discipleship. And hopefully everything will kind of fit into that. But I want to talk about five different things that Jesus wants us to know about discipleship. Five different things. And the first one is that discipleship is not optional. It's not optional. Notice in verse 25 and 27, he says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus And turning to them, he says, and then at the end he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is traveling around, you may know this, with kind of 12 in a sort of an inner circle. And those are the people that made the full-time, all-out, all-in kind of commitment to Jesus. We dropped our nets, we left our booths, we left our homes, we left our families We're camping out with you. We're eating with you. We're doing everything with you, Jesus. But do you notice he doesn't just turn to his 12 and say this, this whole thing about hating and this whole thing about following him and about taking up their cross and all this. He turns to everyone. He turns to the crowd. He doesn't just turn to the full-timers. He turns to the people that are just out for a day investigating Jesus who were like, let me see what this whole Jesus thing is about. I've heard rumors about him. I want to go out and see him. I've heard he's a great teacher. I heard he heals people. I heard all these good things. But I'm just investigating him for a day. And Jesus turns to those people and he says, you're either all in or you're all not. See, I, I was trying to think of it this way. Jesus doesn't run a pyramid scheme. There is no hierarchy 
when it comes to following him. He doesn't have an entry-level position. He, he, he doesn't come to you and go, well, yeah, there's these like uber-Christians over here, but for you, I've got this great low-commitment, no-money-down, come-and-go-as-you-wish option. And yet, I mean, isn't it true that almost everyone in our culture thinks that somehow you can actually be a Christian without being a disciple? That you can participate as you wish, when you want, kind of at your own pace, your own commitment level, kind of do things occasionally, maybe sort of believe most of what the Bible has to say, or maybe pray when trouble comes along. But they're like these super Christians over here, and they're completely sold out for Jesus. And then there's me, and I'm not one of them. I mean, I know that people believe this because I believed it. This is what I believed for a very long period of time. I looked at my roommate and some of his friends who were completely sold out for Jesus, loved him to no end and made him a part of absolutely everything that they did. And I thought they were nuts for a long period of time. And I thought that I was okay with sort of my nominal level of belief. And I remember coming across passages like this and realizing that Jesus leaves no room for me to stand there. I thought there was a fence with a wide platform and I could kind of stand on it and be okay. And it turns out that that fence is about as narrow as a razor wire. Jesus says, whoever wants to follow me must carry their cross. They must hate their family. They must sell out totally. I don't have entry-level positions. I don't have no money down sorts of commitments. There's one position, and that's with me first over your entire life, and I won't and I can't come in second to anything else. Now that's, is that, do you find that hard to accept? Do you find that controversial or difficult to swallow? It is. I'll just be upfront about that. It, there, it is a difficult thing to kind of wrap our minds around. But here's the other side of that coin that I want you to see. It's also freedom. It's, it's incredibly freeing because you realize with Jesus, there are no hidden fees. There's no fine print with Jesus. He, he doesn't turn to the crowds and go, guess what, I'm going to give you life abundantly. And then turn to his 12 and goes, yeah, but they're going to pay for it. He never does that. It's a full commitment to him. And that's the only commitment to him. And Jesus is completely upfront about it. Either I have your whole life or I have none of it. And there's no in between. It's not optional. Here's the second thing. Discipleship isn't just not optional, it's disruptive. It disrupts the normal order and the normal kind of flow of our life. Um, Because in verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and then who does he list? He lists father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. So it's like, here's the thing you have to know about the context. Jesus is, he's not speaking to 21st century America. 21st century Americans would read that and go, well, I don't need my mom. I disowned her long ago. I don't need children to be complete. I'm my own person. I don't need my brother. I don't need my sister. I don't need 
these people in my, my life. I, I'm an individual. That's the way we think of ourselves primarily first, as, as, as kind of being our own person. Jesus' audience would have been completely foreign to that idea. Because their whole life, for them, would have revolved around their family. Their family came before everything. So the, their, their whole world would have been wrapped up in what their parents say about them and, and whether or not they have kids and whether or not they were involved in their extended families. Because to their culture in that day, you never disgraced your family. You wouldn't say a harsh word against them. You never moved away from one side of the country to another. You certainly wouldn't marry someone if your mom or dad said they're off limits. The family was everything. So what is Jesus doing? He's looking at the normal flow of someone's life, the normal agenda that people set out to accomplish through their everyday life. And he essentially says to this group of people, you think that you have your agenda in order, but don't you dare come to me to get your agenda for your life. I'm... Don't come to me so that your outline of the way that things should go for you is accomplished. Don't try to fit me into your plans. In other words, don't use me. Don't don't come to me as a means to your end. I'm an end in myself. Don't come to me just because you want a better family or a better life or well-behaved kids. Don't come to me just because you think I'm going to bless you and give you that promotion that you've been after. Don't come to me to get your best life now. You're using me for your plan. And I don't work that way. You have to come to me for my agenda for your life. You have to be willing to let me arrange the order of how things go. You have to come to me for me alone. And sure, if you come to me in that framework, if you're, if you're willing to let me rearrange the furniture of your life, I'm going to do a better job of it than you can. Don't mistake that. You'll get eternal life. It'll be abundant. It'll be better than you could ask or imagine. But you have to be willing to lay down your expectations. Otherwise, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come to me thinking that I'm your Lord, but you're always going to resist my plans for you. And I don't work that way because I'm a king. So, uh, one of the classic illustrations of this in the way that we've kind of tweaked this understanding is one of the most famous things that Jesus ever says. This is John 14.6. Jesus says... Famous phrase, right? We all know this. Many of us have it memorized. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know what Christians have said for, for uh, decades, if not centuries? See, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to believe in Jesus. Where does it say that? See, we've turned Jesus into a means to get to this eternal afterlife sort of paradise kind of thing. We're, all right, well, if I need to believe in Jesus in order to get to that, I guess I'll believe in Jesus. And that's what, essentially what the church has taught for so long. 
we've just gotten used to the fact that we use Jesus to get our goals. And we just spiritualize him and think he's okay with that. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. I'm the way. I'm the way myself. I'm the truth myself. I'm the life myself. There is no life apart from getting to know me. And sure, when you come to me, you get me and you get my father at the same time because we're a package deal. But don't use me for some kind of afterlife. Don't come to me in fear. Come to me because you want my love. Say, Jesus is like Aslan from Narnia. You know, that very famous uh, passage where, you know, the kids are just getting to, they just hear the word Aslan for the first time. They find out he's a lion and that, that he's coming back to his throne. They're like, a lion? Oh, man. Is, is he safe? And you know the answer, right? If, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus, in the, he's not safe. He, he doesn't lead your life the way that it was before. He upends everything. He disrupts the order. But he's good. And you can bank on his goodness. Because when he comes in, he disrupts. Don't make him a means to your end. Make your life a means to him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, here's the third thing. The the disciple begins with love. The essence of discipleship is love. And that's clear as day, isn't it? When you read verse 26 and it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, like isn't that perfectly like, I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) He says, if anyone does not hate, such a person cannot be... My disciple, isn't, I mean, don't you just get the warm fuzzies when you read that? Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, how how many of you have this like on a plaque above your dining room table? Right? (laughs) Why hate? I want to clarify something. He's not saying, I want you to be hostile to the people in your life. He's not saying, I want you to resent them. I want you to be at war with them. I want you to to build up animosity towards them. He can't be saying that because what did we look at last week? Love your enemies, right? Love them the way that God has loved you. And even if your enemy is your dad, you're still required to love him according to what Jesus says. So this can't just mean hate your dad at the same time. It's got to mean something else. I mean, and especially the fact that, like, you know, Jesus loves his enemies really well. He's, he prays for the forgiveness of the people that are nailing him to a cross, and he says they don't realize what they're doing. Father, forgive them. So, so here's the deal. In the Bible, uh, this word hate, it can mean to hate something actively, Right? to to be openly hostile towards it. But here's the other meaning, and this is what I think Jesus is getting at, is that it can mean to hate something comparatively. When you compare one thing to another, you can hate it in reference to something else that you don't hate. Now, 
There's a classic example of this in Genesis 29. And one of the the, um, patriarchs of the nation of Israel, his name was Jacob, and Jacob had two wives, if you remember. He had uh, Leah and he had Rachel. And this is what it says about how Jacob felt about these two wives that he had. In Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31, Jacob loved Rachel, how? More than he loved Leah. And then in verse 31, it says that the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. See, your translation, our our modern translations will never translate that word to actually what it is in Hebrew, which is hate. The Lord saw that Leah was not just unloved, but hated. Now, go back and read the story. Jacob is never actively hostile towards Leah in any way. He cares for her. She's part of the family. He honors the children that she produces for him. Like, there's no active hostility. He never loathes her. But, here's the deal, compared to his lavish, incredible, emotional, affectionate love for Rachel, yeah, his love for Leah looked like hatred by contrast. Do you see what I'm getting at? So realize here, Jesus uses the same sort of language to talk about Jesus, to talk about being a disciple. He's saying, I want you to love me. And he compares the, the love that we're to have to him, for him, to every other kind of love that we would experience. The love for our parents, the love for our spouse, the love for our children. And he's saying, I, I want to... I want you to both give and receive a kind of love that makes every other love pale in comparison. That it would look like hatred when it's compared to the kind of love that we have between each other. I don't just want your religious duty. I don't just want you to show up on Sunday, check a box, and go home. I'm not just after your money. I want your love for me to be as real as as tender as a child's love for their mom, as a husband's love for their wife, as a parent's love for their children. And even more so until all those other loves seem somehow limited by comparison. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I want to be the Rachel of your life. I want make me your Rachel. Love me so much that everything else pales. What, it, you get a great picture of even what that looks like when you look at Jacob and Rachel's story because uh, Jacob discovers Rachel and then meets her dad, which is a whole complicated mess. But one of the things that the dad says is, if you work for me for seven years, I will give you my daughter Rachel in marriage. Now, he's, he plays a trick on him in the end, and that's how he gets Leah too. Um, but, but listen to, to the way that Jacob moves through those seven years. It says, so Jacob served, that Rachel's father, seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Do you see it? Seven years goes by in a flash 
because his mind and his heart were filled with her face. And any service that was required to him was more than worth the cost for the treasure that he was going to receive at the end. I mean, apply that same language to what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, be my disciple because you think of me like that. Dallas Willard, uh, in a pretty famous book called Divine Conspiracy, he's talking about the cost of discipleship. And we, we always think about the cost of discipleship of being like the, you know, the, the, the extreme nature of like what Jesus requires of us. And gosh, it's going to be such a drudgery. And what if he calls me to Africa? And like, you know, like all these different things were like, well, I, I can't give him my whole heart because then that's just going to be service and duty and it won't be uh, this fulfilling, life-giving thing. And he, he says this, which I love. He says, no one goes sadly, reluctantly into discipleship with Jesus. No one goes in bemoaning the cost. They understand that to be with him is the opportunity of a lifetime. When you think about what you gain in result, those, whatever he calls you to is a flash in the pan compared to what you get. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, make me more important than your father. Make me more important than your mother or your family. Although that's true too. And there are other places where he actually says it that way. But here, he's, he's not just talking about that. He's talking about real love. Real affection and communication and embrace and delight and connection. Everything that a husband and wife share together that you and I would share with him and even to a greater degree, even to a greater depth. Uh, l- last week when I was talking about this whole turn the other cheek thing, and um, I was sharing that part about Jesus and Nicodemus and how, you know, Nicodemus essentially represented Jesus' enemies, but he comes to him and Jesus is tender and sweet and, and shares the gospel with him. And uh, I was talking with Mandy afterwards, and she goes, I just love when you do that. Because <laughs> she's like, I just I love to get that picture of Jesus as just being this warm, compassionate like person that I can go to. And she, she goes, I, I just thought, oh, Jesus. That, my first reaction as a husband when my wife says that, like has that kind of swoon over another man is to like... <laughs> Like, hey, you know. (laughs) But that's exactly what Jesus is calling for. That's the right order. He should be the the love of her life. I need to come in second to Him. Because if I don't, then then life itself is out of order. Because there are going to be days when I won't be the husband that she needs. I won't be able to capture her heart the way that it needs to be captured. I, I won't be able to give her the, the love and the support and the, 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 the stability that she needs as a woman. But everywhere I fail as a husband, Jesus is going to be right there. And so if her affection for me outpaces her affection for him, then she's going to be looking to the wrong guy. And that's true for everyone. See, it's, when Jesus says to love me to such a degree that you hate others, he's not talking about exclusivity. 
he's talking about a kind of love that flows into every other love that we have. So that you can love them the right way. Romans three, uh, Romans five, um, three to five puts it this way. It says, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, if you, if you have any kind of false assumptions that following Jesus is a drudgery, that being a part of a church or going to church, as we use that that language, which is totally off-base off to begin with, is, is somehow the end goal. You're missing it. You've completely missed the boat. Is he the love of your life? Is he the most... When you think of him, does it stir the deepest affections of your heart? Deeper than absolutely anyone. I think of the person that you have the, the greatest connection with, the one that your heart just melts when you think of them. Jesus is saying, if you see me rightly, your heart will melt even more when you think of me. And that's the essence of what it means to be a disciple, is to have his love poured out into our hearts. And, and what Romans 5 is saying is that everything hinges on this. Your ability to persevere through life, your, your ability to, to be a person of character, your, 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 the basis of your hope, the way that you endure suffering, all of it will flow from a deep love of Jesus when he's your daily treasure. I'll put it this way. When your loves are in order, your life is going to be in order. If you get your loves out of order, watch out. Because your life is going to follow. But when they're in order, your life follows. And here's what I mean by that. Let, just as an example, let's say you experience a difficult breakup or even a, a divorce with someone that you've loved deeply. Maybe you've loved them for decades. And that does tremendous um, damage to, to who you are as a person. It, it tears down your, self of, your self-confidence it destroys the plans that you have over your life. And all of this happens maybe suddenly, maybe over time, but, but certainly against your desires. And you can choose to handle that suffering in one of two ways. The first way that you can choose to handle that suffering is to actively hate the person that did it to you. And that's what we think Jesus is talking about, right? Right? To actively hate someone, which it sounds like this. I never really loved them. They were a horrible person. They might have had good qualities, but deep down, they were a scorpion. I can't believe they would do that to somebody. Who do they think they are? And you degrade and you, down, you, you tear them down in your mind again and again and again until there's nothing left but ashes. That's active hatred. And that's one way to go about it. Or, here's the second way. You can comparatively hate them. Comparative hatred sounds like this. Yes, I love them. I care for them deeply. And they hurt me. And it wasn't okay. And I lost them. 
and, and I'm, I'm slowly rebuilding the ashes of my life as a result of what they did to me. And I'm not excusing what they did. But I, here's, the, here's the, the comparative part. They, as, as damaging as what they did to me was when they left, they can never remove from me my deepest source of love. They, they might have said horrible things about me and called me every name in the book, but I know it's not true because I have a Savior who tells me I'm beautiful. And so, yeah, it's, it doesn't remove the hurt, but it allows you to do what? To have character and hope and perseverance in the midst of deep suffering. How do you try to, to go through life with perseverance? Do you try to do it by hating the world? By, by becoming bulletproof? By saying, no one is going to harm me because I'm going to close my heart off to everybody. I'm, I'm just not going to love people that much. I'm not going to open myself up to that kind of, uh, of, of attack. I, I'm not going to love my parents so much. or I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to close my heart off to my wife or my husband. I'm going to try to kill off that part of my heart. Here's the thing. It doesn't work. It just turns you into a cold, bitter person that can't actually deal with the difficulties of life. And the reason it doesn't work at its core is because you were built for sustainable, unending, infinite, eternal love. You were, you were made to experience that. It's just that you were looking to the wrong person to give it to you. So active hatred doesn't work, but comparative hatred does. Because the only way to overcome the world is by accessing, reveling in, resting in the treasure that never goes away, the wealth that never tarnishes, the love that eclipses every other love. if If you're waffling on that fence, if you're like, yeah, I'm... I've, I've been actively hating because I think that that's the best way to protect me. I just, I want you to know there's a better way. Make him your Rachel. And watch what he does with those other relationships and watch how he restores your heart and makes it into what it should have been, which, again, it goes back to a person who can, who can turn the other cheek to someone who doesn't sit in the in the, the, the wrongdoing and allow it to happen again and again, removes yourself from it, but then at the same time continues to offer love and grace to people who even hate you. And Jesus is essentially saying, like, stop hating the world your way and learn how to hate it my way. Because I bring freedom. Now, now, how do you do that? Um... How do you get that kind of love? And, and the answer that Jesus, is, Jesus gives is, uh, it's through death. It's only through death. Because um, he says in verse 27, whoever, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot meet my disciple. And we say this week after week after week, and hopefully, you know, I'm starting to believe it. Maybe you are too. That if you, if you try to follow Jesus' teaching on your own, you're going to be crushed by it. 
if you just come to him as a good teacher that has great advice for you, you'll soon find out it's impossible to follow. I mean, that was true, right, last week with turning the other cheek. You go, I can't do this without him. And that's the point. And and again, Jesus is saying essentially the same thing here. Because notice he doesn't say, whoever carries my teaching, whoever carries my advice, whoever carries my wisdom will be my disciple. Yeah, he, he doesn't say that. He says, whoever carries their cross. What's a cross? It's an instrument of death. It's putting yourself to death. And that starts with a disciple saying, you know, when I come to Jesus, I, I come to him not because I am able to follow him, not because I'm somehow a good person and Jesus plucked me out as a diamond among the rough. I come to him with my inability. I come to him as someone who's been crucified. I have died. And that's the beginning of good news. Colossians 3, Paul puts it this way, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Dead people can't do much for, for someone. And that's essentially what we're saying. If we come to Jesus and go, okay, all right, I'm going to do this. I got it. I know what to do now. I'm going to, I'm going to hate my, my parents comparatively. I'm going to get after this. No, it's not going to happen. You were buried with him. If When you come to Jesus, the moment that you believe in Him, you died on the cross with Him. It was an admission of your death. That's why we say all the time when people get into the waters of baptism, it's not a promise over what they're going to do for God. It's a white flag. It's someone waving their arms going, I'm helpless apart from Him. I was dead before. I'm getting into the water to show just how dead I am but how much Jesus, when He comes and fills my heart, can raise me to new life. It's not about me. It's entirely about Him. When you, when you come to, to Jesus, and this is the, the great part of the Gospel, is that because you died, God, when He looks at you, He looks at you through the life of Jesus. He doesn't come and condemn you for your inability to follow Jesus. He comes and He looks at you as if you yourself are everything that Jesus accomplished. I worry sometimes that when we talk about discipleship, um, we get really discouraged. That somehow I'm, I'm calling us to something that's a really high bar, which it, it is. Don't get me wrong. We'll talk about that in a second. But that, that we somehow failed and we continue to fail. And we go, gosh, I'm such a failure because I don't meet that standard. And I just want to release the, the pressure valve for you because you don't have to beat yourself up about that. Someone was already beaten for it. If you're in Christ, you've been beaten. You've been flogged. You've been crowned with thorns. 
You've been speared. You've been nailed. You've been crucified. It's done. It's paid for. It's finished. You don't have to emotionally beat yourself up. It's all, it's all paid. Because He did it. And now Paul's saying, your life is hidden with Christ. And when God looks at you, He sees His Son. Now, and, and so in other places when Jesus talks about this, like in Luke 9, He says to take up your cross daily and follow after Him. And here's what that means. It means every day you get up and you remind yourself, Apart from Jesus, I have no life. Apart from what he did, I have no ability. But because today I live in Christ, I have nothing to prove. I am fully accepted. I will follow him regardless of what that means because he loves me even before my toes hit the ground. Before I've had anything to please him, he's pleased with me. that's to live in the shadow of the cross. Because I know His fullness and His love and His sacrifice for me. Even if He calls me to seven years of suffering for Him, it's only going to be like a few days because my mind and my heart are full of His love. See, you, you get to the point where you're not thinking about the work that you have to do for Him and how you're going to fall short. You're thinking about His work for you. And how he didn't fall short for you. Now when Jesus says take up your cross, it means to live in light of his sacrifice for you. And part of that is that you hate your own life. Now again, active, comparative. We can think that to hate your own life means to actively hate yourself. To to have like low self-esteem or self-loathing. But that's not what he's calling you to do. Remember, he's calling you to comparative hatred, which is to love something so much that everything else gets taken care of in its own time. So so to hate your life means that you crucify your self-centeredness. It's what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That the more you become... uh, engrossed in and and just enveloped by Jesus and what he is like and what he's done for you and how he's leading you, your eyes get so focused on him that you forget yourself and you forget your own needs and you forget your own desires because your desires are wrapped up in him and you just think whatever he wants, that's what I want. Discipleship is not optional. It's disruptive. It's based on love and it requires death. Now here's the last one. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. Um, When Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, um, picture this. If you saw someone walking through the streets with a cross on their back, you knew it was the last person that thing was ever going to do. Nobody takes up a cross and then later on says, you know, this isn't working for me. I thought this would be a little bit more exciting, but I'm starting to have reservations. I think I'll go home now. Now, when you're under the cross, you're under the custody of someone else. 
Jesus says, you, when you become my disciple, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to me. You go where I go. My thoughts inform your thoughts. There is no life apart from me anymore. And that's good news. There's so many people that think that... I, I thought this for several years myself. When we give ourselves to Jesus... I mean, this is we're talking about the Lord of the universe, right? This isn't just a carpenter from Galilee. This is the creator and the sustainer of the entire world. And you think, when I give myself over to this person, things should start to go smoothly, right? Um, and Jesus looks at us and he says, look, hey, when you sign up to be with me, you sign up to be like me. I don't know if you realize this, but I didn't have a very comfortable life, so don't expect that you will either. But there are greater things out there than comfort. Because when people looked at Jesus, they thought he was condemned. They thought he was going to his death, when really he, he was, but at the same time, he was going to his own death, but he was going to a resurrection at the same time. Just three days later, Jesus was going to be crowned not just with thorns, but with glory. And that he was going to spearhead a movement filled with the Holy Spirit that would turn the world upside down. Now, when Jesus comes to us and he says, follow me, he's talking about taking all the conditions off. He's not saying, follow me so long as I lead you to a better life. Follow me so long as I meet your expectations. No, follow me to whatever I lead you to. Knowing that just as as I was led through death to new life, that that pattern is going to be the same for you. I'm going to lead you into things that you would have never chosen for yourself because you wanted comfort. And I wanted more for you. And when you take the conditions off, it's, it's an, that's a, the deepest act of trust that you can possibly have. Where you say, I'm, I'm not going to resist your movement anymore, God. I'm not going to have you, but have it my way too. I want your way or nothing. I want your road or no road. To be under his custody. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. And it's, it's the opportunity of a lifetime if he's your Rachel. It's the greatest thing that you could ever be called to. Now, many of us, and I would include myself in this, we, when we think about this, we think of how far we fall short. And when we think about, okay... I want to rediscover this love. I want to, I want to get back into the center of what he's calling me to. I, I want to live a life of, of without conditions, uh, just a full life of discipleship. I want to get back there. And then we start thinking about all the things that we've got to do to get there. Does it, I mean, and you, and you think, wow, like, <laughs> it's not just 12 steps. Like, it, it seems like an infinite number of steps. And, and how could I ever get back there? 
I, I was reading this, and it was great. It was a great reminder for me because um, the the church of Ephesus basically was dealing with some some of the same things. And uh, if you know anything about their story, they they appear in the last book of the Bible when Jesus is kind of handing out his accommodations to how churches are doing. And he turns his attention to the book to the to the church in Ephesus. And at first glance, you think like, if you were going to choose to be part of any church, like that would be the one that you'd want to do because it seems like they got everything going for them. And it, they're full of hard work, and they're full of perseverance, and they're full of holiness. They're like, man, they they really got it going on. But then Jesus turns and he says this: "Yet I hold this against you." You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. If there if if there if there's anything sobering in the Bible, it should be that that sentence that you can commit yourself to a lifetime of devotion and yet have fallen woefully short of Jesus' expectations. Why? Be, because you've, you've forgotten that he's your Rachel. You've, you've made your life with him more of a work of duty than of delight. You, your eyes don't well up when you think about him. Your heart doesn't fill when you, you, you remember what he did for you. You just kind of shrug your shoulders and get on with the duty part. I mean, if, if that doesn't tell you that he, he, he could care less about the externals and he cares about the... I don't know what else does, if not here. It's about the heart. It's about this deep love for him. And out of that love, everything will flow. Now here, So if you don't have that, I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. You're in danger. There's a deep danger here that your heart could become so cold and callous that it could close itself off to Jesus entirely. And the real danger is you think you'll be okay when really you're at the precipice of a pit. That's one half of it, but here's the other one. The very next verse, when, when it says, look how far you've fallen. Don't you just get this imagery of like falling into a pit? And how do you get out of a pit? You've got to climb your way back out of it, right? You, like, I'm imagining someone being at the, like, the very bottom of this enormous pit, and they're looking up, and they're like, I guess I should start climbing. And you would think that if, if you've fallen really that far, that the very next thing that Jesus says would be, and get to work. But what's the very next word? Repent and do the things that you did at first. To repent just it simply means it's a it's an instantaneous change of belief. It's a momentary decision where you change your mind about God and you remember what He's done for you. It's not climbing out of a pit. It's it's coming to realization that Jesus is in the pit with you. And then you cling to him and watch him get you out. 
And then he says, and do the things that you did at first. What are the things that they did at first? Obviously, it's not just the hard work because they're doing that part. What they did at first was they got together in groups of people and they said, I can't believe that Jesus is real. I can't believe that the God of the universe loved me and died for me. I can't believe that he went to the cross. And they rejoiced in it. And they they had meals around it. And they remembered together. And they prayed together. And they, they just sang together with glad and sincere hearts. And then God did all the work from there. That's how you get back. You remember what he did. And you choose his love again. And you say, today and tomorrow, I'm going to live in light of the cross. And I'm going to watch what he does. And if you do that today, you're a disciple. And every day that you do that, you're a disciple. And that's the essence. Seven years of labor will will fly by in a flash. As long as you keep your eyes on him. Let's pray. God, when we think of uh, the essence of what it means to follow you, um, I'm thankful that that essentially means that we wave a white flag. That we begin with our own death and we just say, I've failed and I will continue to fail you, God. But just as Romans... 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All the pang of that penalty has been washed away, and the only thing that's left now is the fact that I get to look at you face to face. I get to experience your love again. I get to know that despite how I've done this week, that my position in you has not changed that you see me the same yesterday, today, as you will see me when you when I stand before you. I'm just as much under grace now. Lord, I pray that if our hearts have gone cold, that you, Holy Spirit, would pour your love into them. That our hearts would fill that our eyes would well up, that we'd be just bursting with the incredible nature of your love for us. And that you would put everything else in order. The way that we live in relationship with our parents and with our spouse, with our children, brothers, sister, family, friends. Lord, would you do that work? In Jesus' name, amen.